You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Hello and welcome to the JNNP podcast. My name's Stephen Wing. In this episode, I have with me on the line Professor Roger Barker, who works at the John Van Gee Centre for Brain Repair in Cambridge. Thank you for joining us, Roger. Oh, thank you. Now, Roger, you recently published a paper in the journal and you report the long-term follow-up of a trial of fetal striatal tissue transplants for those with Huntington's disease. Could you just tell us a little bit about the background to the study and what you were hoping to find out? So the background to transplantation of Huntington's goes back about 25, 30 years. During the 1980s, there was a great deal of interest in the possibility of repairing strategic pathology and diseases of the brain by transplanting in the fetal equivalent of that brain area that uh, is mainly targeted by the disease process. So perhaps this is best known in Parkinson's disease where you lose the dopamine cells in the nigra in the midbrain and you transplant in fetal midbrain to replace them. It was on that background in the early mid-1980s that experimental studies were undertaken in Huntington's disease models, which you have to remember preceded the identification of the gene in the early 1990s. So the models as conceived in the 1980s were essentially ones in which the striatum, which is the major site of pathology in Huntington's disease, was lesioned typically with excitotoxic drugs. It was then demonstrated experimentally that if you lesion that structure, you can transplant in equivalent fetal striatal tissue. So in the case of a rat or a mouse, it would be the developing rat striatum from rat fetuses. And that uh, series of experiments, or those series of experiments done in the 1980s, demonstrated that not only could you successfully transplant fetal striatal tissue into the lesion striatum, but that it could survive, it could turn into striatal neurons, it received and made connections from the host brain, and it restored behavior in those animal models. And then during the 1990s, uh, it was taken on to the next level with non-human primates where exactly the same experimental protocol was done. They lesioned the striatum of different monkeys, both in the UK and in France, transplanted in uh, the equivalent fetal tissue from uh, a monkey uh, fetus and showed again that it survived, it made connections and it uh, relieved many of the behavioral deficits that these animals had. And so it was on that background that the clinical trials began uh, in a number of places, uh, I think perhaps most prominently in France, led by uh, Mark Brzezanski and uh, Catherine Baku-Levy, where they took on the same approach in patients with Huntington's disease, namely to replace the damaged striatum by putting in the equivalent uh, fetal tissue, in this case uh, from termination of pregnancies uh, and dissecting out the developing striatum from the human fetus and then transplanting that into the Huntington's disease striatum with the expectation, based on the animal work, that it would survive, it would make connections, and it would ameliorate many of the clinical features that those patients would have. Sure. So uh, how did you set about trying to study this? Because the, the study began in the late 1990s. Is that right? So, so the study began in the late 1990s in patients, and, the, and it really began in France, and then there was a, a UK consortium, the UK Nest, which took on this project. And it was a difficult challenge knowing quite which patients to choose, because obviously if you want to repair a bit of the brain, then the earlier you can repair it, the better. But obviously if you're transplanting tissue into a structure that's largely intact, then you may cause more damage. So there were issues about which type of patient would be ideal based on the degree of striatal loss. Similarly, if you go for patients who have very advanced disease, not only is it technically difficult or impossible to transplant the tissue into a structure that's so atrophied, 
But also by that stage, patients have really lost the capacity to give informed consent about the procedure. So after a great deal of debate, it was decided that perhaps the best patients to try, and of course in these early studies, one's really looking at feasibility and tolerability of the, uh, of the procedure, we chose patients who had early stage disease. So these were patients who clearly had manifest Huntington's disease, they clearly had a degree of striatal atrophy, and they were also capable of understanding what it was we were asking of them in terms of this experimental uh, therapeutic trial. Okay, so how did you go about assessing patients and what outcomes were you looking at? So the way in which we assessed the patients and then followed them over time involved a number of different approaches. The first and perhaps the most prominent was the clinical assessment. So as you're aware, Huntington's disease affects uh, people in a number of different ways, most obviously in terms of motor control, uh, cognitive function and to some extent psychiatric uh, problems. So we set about uh, assessing these patients using standardized motor assessments, such as the Unified Huntington's Disease Rating Scale. We did cognitive assessments, which also have been standardized through the UHDRS uh, cognitive test, but we also did a series of, of computerized tests from the Cantab battery, which was developed uh, in Cambridge. So we did a large number of clinical and motor tests, which we then followed, uh, which we then used to follow patients over time. So in order to try and make that as consistent and as meaningful as possible, given the number of patients who would have such therapies very small, you have a long running period. So essentially you follow these patients for at least 12 months and in some cases several years before they actually had the intervention. And then you apply the same tests afterwards and you can obviously compare what they were like before and afterwards and rate of deterioration across those tests. So that gives you clinical measures. Then the other measures we used were MRI scan, which obviously gives you in those, stages, those days we didn't do any functional imaging and the structural imaging was very limited. And essentially what we were doing on the structural imaging was excluding patients who may have either too much atrophy or another uh, cause for not wanting to do neurosurgery on them. But it was also a way of assessing that the transplant had arrived in the right site and that there was nothing untoward happening at the transplant site, such as overgrowth of the tissue. And then the final assessment we used was uh, positron emission tomography, PET scanning, uh, using raclopide labelling, raclopide being a D2 receptor uh, ligand, because obviously the striatum expresses D2 receptors. One of the very early features of hunting disease, even before patients present uh, clinically, is the loss of D2 receptors. So the argument would be that that's a sensitive measure of striatal pathology, and if we were putting back striatal tissue that would replace and repair that that was lost to the disease, you would see a restoration of the D2 uh, raclotide signal in the striatum of the grafted patient. So clinical and imaging endpoints uh, were the main things? Yeah, so clinical imaging, we didn't use any biomarker, wet biomarker, CSF, blood or things of that nature because there weren't really any clear... Uh, test at that time which was super I'm not sure there even are now and certainly not enough that would give you the confidence that you could rely on them for a robust signal in these type of studies. Yeah and then the environment changed for cell transplantation can you tell us a little bit about what happened with that and, and what you had to do to get around certain problems? So when this transplant trial began in the late 1990s you obviously had to go through quite a lot of regulatory procedure and ethical approval so in order to do the trial here in Cambridge we had to have ethical approval to collect the fetal tissue, to transplant it into patients, to do the imaging and such like. Uh, and it was all done essentially with good clinical practice and good manufacturing practice as existed in the late 1990s which was essentially that you prepared the tissue in special human room here within our centre. 
However, during the first part of this century, uh, there was an EU uh, tissue directive which very much more clearly stipulated what needed to be done with human tissue if it was to be used in clinical trials. And part of that was the need for any tissue which was prepared and stored before uh, transplanting into patients to be uh, done in a standardized way uh, through a GMP facility, so an accredited GMP facility. Now, for those who are not familiar with it, that is a very different uh, environment to the standard rooms in which we were preparing the human tissue here. Not that we had any problems or safety problems, and no one else had around the world who had used similar facilities. But because this directive became law, we then had to ensure that our trial, if it was to continue, would be preparing that tissue in GMP facilities. That brings with it a whole series of new regulations, standard operating procedures, uh, the consequence of which is that a decade after we suspended our trial, we are still finalising the protocols and the necessary regulations and accreditations in order to use fetal tissue in patients, uh, in this case for Parkinson's disease, but the same would apply for Huntington's disease. Sure. So having got around all of that, you transplanted five patients and this is the 10-year the follow-up. So the, in, the, in the very early part of this century, we, we did graft five patients with Huntington's disease and we did it in two stages. So the first stage was to take four patients and do unilateral transplants, really to check that there was no major problems of, a, of concern with putting human fetal tissue into the striatum of patients with early Huntington's disease. So we did grafts on one side of the brain in four patients and we reported that in the JNMP in 2002 with the lead author being uh, Anne Rosser showing that it was a very safe uh, procedure. There were no major problems that we had. We then went on and transplanted the other side in those four patients after getting ethical approval to do that and were then moving on to transplant another six patients with bilateral transplants. Having done the fifth patient, the EU directive then became law and we had to suspend the trial uh, because uh, for the reasons that I've already said, that we were unable to uh, use the facilities that we were using at the time. So uh, after 2003, we only had five patients who had been grafted. Four had had staged bilateral transplants. One had had a simultaneous bilateral transplant. And this current paper is the follow-up of those five patients over the ensuing years. And I should say that those five patients were part of a bigger cohort. So we essentially recruited uh, around... Uh, 20 to 24 patients initially who were followed up in exactly the same way over time of which these patients were randomly selected from the group for transplantation and in the paper we compare the, the natural history or the progress or, uh, of the five grafted patients against the other uh, members of the cohort who did not have a transplant. So these are patients who've not had sham surgery, they haven't had anything which uh, would lead them to believe that they could have had an intervention but essentially we're comparing the natural history of five patients in receipt of striatal transplants against a cohort of matched patients in terms of their disease stage and matched in terms of their assessments uh, over a 10-year uh, period. Yeah, and what were the main findings? The transplanted patients didn't deviate significantly from those that had not had a transplant. In other words, their progress over the ensuing years did not seem to have been influenced by the transplant either for good or for bad. So there was no evidence of a major benefit from having the transplant. Uh, and conversely, there was no evidence that the transplant had worsened their condition in any significant way. So our conclusion really from the study was that, in, it, it was that taking this particular uh, format of trial showed that there was 
no major placebo effect, at least in our hands, from having uh, uh, transplanted these patients in an open-label fashion. That the transplant protocol, as we had developed it and, and dispatched it in the early part of the century, seemed to have no major efficacy on patients with, with Huntington's disease. So it wasn't really a therapy that we could continue to use in that format. Uh, and that it was very relatively safe. It's always difficult to make any uh, substantial comments about safety when you only have five patients, but there were no major complications or problems with the transplant procedure itself. So, so far the procedure seems safe and there's no discernible placebo effect, but why was it that you thought that people didn't improve? I think the reason why the trial didn't succeed is debatable. So some people would say, well, the reason the trial failed to show any benefit was because this approach will never work. In Huntington's disease, striatal pathology is only part of a much more global disorder. So simply trying to repair a part of it is unlikely to produce any significant uh, benefit. And that may be true. Uh, all I would say against that is we have published also in the JNMP a couple of patients who received transplants at another institute in London, at King's College in London, one of whom has shown a very different course to those which we reported in this paper. He's done extremely well, and his clinical course has not only shown an improvement, but on imaging he clearly has evidence of surviving striatal tissue on PET scanning. So uh, I think our patients didn't fail because the procedure itself or the approach is sort of fatally flawed in terms of its concept. I think it always will have some benefit in some patients. I suspect it didn't really show any major benefit because the benefits you're going to see are always going to be quite small. That the amount of tissue we grafted was relatively small because at the time of the transplant project there was a concern that human striatal tissue may have this capacity to overgrow there was been some reports that if you put striatal tissue into animal models of disease you could get a massive expansion of striatal uh, tissue when it's grafted and because of that we erred slightly on the side of less tissue so we implanted less tissue than for example the patient in london who did extremely well with his transplant so i would say that the trial failed not because conceptually it's 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 flawed. I think its benefits will always be limited because there is no doubt that Hunt's disease is a much more uh, disseminated disease than one that's restricted to the striatum. And therefore, I think the benefits you'll see from striatal transplants will probably always be limited. But I think the major reason was that the methodology and procedures we used were clearly far from optimal. And that if we did optimize them, we may see much more of a benefit in a selected group of patients. So where does all this leave us for cell transplants for Huntington's? I think it. I think the. I think the future of cell transplantation in Huntington's disease is is still up for grabs, if you like. I think the fundamental problem in Huntington's disease is clearly it's a genetic disorder driving a cell autonomous with some non-cell autonomous elements to it across the whole of the central nervous system. The striatum takes a major hit, so it's not unreasonable to try and repair the striatum. But whatever you do around cell therapies in the striatum, I think will always have limited impact on Huntington's disease. But there may be selected patients where that approach will be extremely helpful. I think it's more likely that the future of Hunt's disease lies in understanding the pathogenesis and targeting the gene and the gene products and that pathogenic process rather than looking for cell replacement. Ultimately, of course, it could be a combination of the two. You have people who present with manifest disease, you try and repair the bit of the brain uh, within the striatum uh, where they have symptoms and signs relating to that whilst also giving them a disease modifying therapy which will hopefully slow down the disease at that and other sites. 
in terms of where the world is going with with cell-based therapies for Hunter's disease, there is a big trial uh, going on in France at the moment where they're transplanting up to 60 patients with Huntington's disease, which will give us a much clearer picture on really what the true efficacy is of these transplants. There are work going on, especially within Europe, to try and make striatal projection neurons out of embryonic stem cells with the hope that they could then be employed in the next generation of cell-based therapies for hunting disease, assuming that the French study, I think, gives us a clearer signal as to how effective these therapies are in terms of repairing the striatum and returning the patient uh, back to a more normal state. So I think unlike Parkinson's disease, where I think there is a much clearer rationale and much greater evidence in support of a cell-based therapy, I think Huntington's disease still has a question mark over it. But I would say the data is not there for us to definitely uh, decide one way or another. And with your experience of this study, I mean, has this changed your thinking about cell transplants for other disorders? I think cell transplantation for neurological diseases has to be considered on the individual merits of the diseases. I think the idea that cell-based therapies can be applied across the board for neurological diseases or neurodegenerative diseases, whilst being an attractive one, I think needs a great deal of qualification. It seems to me that this approach will only work if you can identify a critical strategic area of pathology. Now, in Parkinson's disease, that's a loss of dopamine cells. I think that's a very good target because we know if we give people dopamine in the form of drugs, they do extremely well. Huntington's disease, I've already commented on. I think the other diseases where people are very interested in looking at cell-based therapies is motor neuron disease, but then the problem is if you're going to use cell replacement, how can I replace the motor neurons along the complete neuroaxis, which is uh, not a trivial problem. But then they may be employed cell-based therapies on a different basis. You may want to use them to, to provide growth factors, anti-inflammatories and things of that nature. Cell-based therapy has been considered for multiple sclerosis, where they work around those multitude of, uh, of actions. And Alzheimer's disease, a lot of people talk about. But given the pathology is, again, cortical and it's so complicated, the pathology, it seems to me that the use of cell-based therapies in that disease has a long way to go before it really has any merit in being tried in the clinic. So my own view is that what our trial of Hunter's disease has shown is that the approach is feasible, that the approach, at least in the small numbers, doesn't produce uh, major side effects, that in studies of this nature you don't necessarily need uh, sham control arms because you can get enough signal if you follow people up uh, for long enough. I think you have to be very strategic about the type of patient you want to treat when in the disease and what you're actually hoping to achieve uh, with that cell-based therapy. And I think we have to learn as we go forward and accept the fact that certainly when we do these type of trials, we're really just starting to understand how best to do it. And the idea that you can uh, operate on a trial of this basis and start and think you'll get a clear signal is optimistic because you're going to have to learn as you go along what's feasible, what's possible, uh, and what is it that we could improve on. Uh, that we think may account for some of the uh, uh, lack of efficacy we've seen in our studies to date. Do you think it might also be in part that people with Huntington's disease uh, are very variable and it's more of a heterogeneous presentation? Yeah, I mean, Parkinson's disease is clearly a very heterogeneous disorder. Huntington's disease people think of as being much more homogeneous because it's obviously a genetic disorder with a known genetic defect. But as you've uh, intimated, the Huntington's disease is, is much more varied than people think. So most people you see in the clinic will have a repeat length of somewhere between 40 and 45, and yet they present at a variety of ages in a variety of different ways. So what influences the clinical presentation of Huntington's disease and the clinical course is largely unknown. 
And so I think the assumption is just because they all carry the same gene with roughly the same repeat length means they've all got the same disorder is at one level true, but actually is uh, rather belies the complexity of the of the disease. And so it may well be that there is a selective subgroup of patient, like the patient we follow up here who was grafted in London, who's done extremely well, who has a particular type of hunting disease, which makes them particularly suitable for this type of treatment. Having said that, if that is only very few of the population that had hunting disease, then this approach will only have very limited mileage in terms of being a useful therapy for most people with this condition. That's great. Thanks very much, Roger. Thank you. You can find a link to that article and listen to all of our previous podcasts on our podcast page. That's podcast.bmj.com forward slash JNMP. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.